Good to be together this morning in worship as we begin a new year. You can open your Bible to Matthew chapter 1, the text that we just heard read as the kids are dismissed to their class. Thank you, Vanessa, for reading that scripture, and thank you, music team, for guiding us, leading us in worship and praise. Well, we made it. We made it to 2022. Congratulations, everyone. You deserve a pat yourself on the back. It's quite an accomplishment. Seems like just yesterday we were in the middle of 2020, and we were all waiting just for that year to end. And somehow 2021 felt a little bit like more of the same. I feel like as a society, we've lowered our ambitions a little bit. There's less talk, at least that I hear, of New Year's resolutions. We've kind of lowered the bar to just sort of getting through the year. Okay, let's just make it across the finish line uh, and maybe give up on all of our ambitious goals, right? And that's understandable with all that we've been facing in our world and in our personal lives. And our recent study found that 62% of people said 2021 was their most stressful year ever. More people surveyed said they struggled more with mental health in 2021 than even in 2020. People are feeling little to no control over their futures, their personal lives, careers, and relationships. 76% of people feel stuck. They feel stuck in their personal lives, feeling anxiety about their future. They feel trapped in the same routine with more loneliness than ever before. Now, maybe you can relate to some of that. Maybe you can relate to all of that. This idea of just feeling stuck, waiting for things to change. Of course, we hope 2022 will be better. We enter it with enthusiasm. Well, of course, we don't know what the future holds, do we? But how can we as believers step into this new year differently than the world around us beyond just feeling stuck? beyond just waiting for things to change. Well, we want to tap into that which is never stuck, that which is always moving ahead despite pandemics, despite the political division that's still raging around us, despite the loss and grief that seems like it's everywhere, and that is the kingdom of Christ. We want to find our identity in Jesus Christ. We want to live that identity out no matter what is happening around us. This morning, we begin a new series in the Gospel of Matthew. I love how our graphic designer chose the image of Jesus walking on water for the image for our series. It's so fitting for us these days, feeling like the storms and the waves are all around us, and we, like the disciples in that boat, need to fix our eyes on Jesus. It feels like now more than ever. When we feel more than ever our loss of control, We need to remember and fix our eyes on the only one who has ever been in control all along. The next several weeks as we walk through this gospel, we'll have the privilege of sitting at the feet of Jesus together, soaking in his teaching, and just following him with his disciples. I feel the need for that spiritual refreshment. I don't know about you. But let's enter this new year together in the grand story of the gospel as Matthew lays it out and find here a renewed sense of our identity in Christ, what it means to live as members of this kingdom that he proclaims in this gospel. And as we turn there, let's pray together. Our Father, we acknowledge as we do weekly our total dependence on you. 
We acknowledge your presence with us. We acknowledge your grace. We thank you for the gift of a new year, and we do pray your blessing on it. And we pray your blessing on these moments that we have together as we look into your word. Would you open our eyes, open our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we just want to introduce the book of Matthew. We want to hit a few highlights from Matthew 1 and 2, since we looked a bit at these chapters as we walked through Advent. But while the book doesn't name its author, it's anonymous, very early, very reliable tradition names Matthew uh, as the author. This Matthew was the tax collector. This Matthew was one of the 12 apostles. Now, many many modern scholars think Matthew wrote this book late, maybe in the 80s A.D. His overall structure seems to be influenced by the Gospel of Mark and the way that Mark set up his Gospel. But on the other hand, some early tradition and early church fathers put Matthew first. There's good arguments on both sides, but thankfully it doesn't change the message of the book. Matthew wrote his Gospel for a church made up largely of Jewish converts. Jewish believers. His use of the Old Testament is extensive to show Jesus as the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Many people see five divisions in the book of Matthew with five distinct sections of teaching, which Matthew may have intended to remind us of the five books of Moses, the Torah. Like Mark, these sections in Matthew, the overall trajectory of the book of Matthew, follows the progress geographically of Jesus from Galilee toward Jerusalem, to fulfill his ultimate mission on earth. Because remember, the gospel writers aren't simply recording historical events in chronological order, just relaying information. They're often arranging these events, these teachings of Jesus, thematically. They're often arranging them theologically. And what we have here in Scripture are four distinct but complementary portraits of Jesus. So what is Matthew doing that's a bit unique among the Gospels? Well, for one thing, he makes it very, very clear that this story, this Gospel story is a continuation. It's the fulfillment of the Old Testament story. As we said, it's packed with Old Testament quotations and allusions, and it begins with this genealogy that declares Jesus as the son of David. This is probably why the early Christians placed Matthew at the beginning of the New Testament. Because this book forms a perfect bridge, really, from the Old Testament to the New. Matthew shows us how Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of God's plan and promises. He's the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. He's proclaiming this kingdom that defines our present and defines the future. His first coming is the turning point of all human history. So a key idea for us to remember to anchor us in this gospel is this idea of fulfillment fulfillment. We'll see that throughout our series. This Jesus is the prophesied one who is greater than Moses. This one, Jesus, is the king in the line of David. This king teaches us what it means to live in this kingdom that he's proclaiming. And so turn to Matthew 1 if you're not already there, if you don't have that in front of you. Let's notice just a few verses here. Matthew 1, starting in verse number 1, the very first verse of the New Testament says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, as a writer, I'm often thinking about what will hook a reader? What will keep them interested and want to keep turning the pages? And I want to say, Matthew, seriously, 
This is how you start. You get to kick off the greatest story ever told in written form, and you start with a genealogy. Thank you very much. If we're honest, this might be why Matthew maybe doesn't make, you know, your top gospel, your favorite gospel. But let's try to resist the temptation just to glaze over when we hear the word genealogy. Let's remember what we said about Matthew being this bridge from the Old to the New uh, Testament. What's he saying right out of the gate? After centuries of apparent silence from God, no new scripture, God's people just waiting, God's people wondering, will God ever come through? Will he show up for us again? Will this long-awaited Messiah ever really come? Look again at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, our eyes might glaze over, but to a first century Jew, I can't think of a better hook to keep them reading. Son of David, son of Abraham. One by one, Matthew takes us through this genealogy, starting from Abraham, going to David, then all the way through the Babylonian captivity and to the arrival of the Christ, the Messiah. Look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. What's Matthew saying? This is all going according to plan. Even the deportation to Babylon, even the captivity, despite the nation's epic failure to keep the covenant, God never forgets his promises. God never fails to uphold his side. His promise of Messiah comes, though, in the most unexpected way, doesn't it? Look at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. If the genealogy wasn't the hook for us, maybe this verse is the hook. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 7. If that sounds familiar, we heard it this morning in the call to worship, straight from Isaiah chapter 7. This mysterious and incredible prophecy A virgin conceiving is already quite a miracle. But Matthew tells us Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. God's plan to bring Messiah, for God to truly be with his people, to dwell among them, to be their God, for them to be his people as he had desired and promised all along. For God to finally take care of human sin. This is how he did it. He took on flesh and became one of us. The most unexpected way God could have done all this. But looking back, could it have been any other way? Is there any other way to make sense and to connect all the threads throughout the Old Testament that point us ahead toward hope and toward Messiah, God with us? As Matthew tells us in verse 22, which he will repeat over and over, all this took place to fulfill. There's our word, fulfill. God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus, who is both God and man. And right from chapter 1, Matthew announces the good news that this Messiah would save his people from their sins. 
Flip over to chapter 2. Chapter 2 starts with this episode with the Magi or the wise men. We looked at that on Christmas Eve, so we won't dwell there. But as these foreign dignitaries, these interesting characters, they show up out of nowhere and they bow before Jesus, these Gentile dignitaries, these Magi. Matthew shows us here that Jesus is not just the Jewish Messiah, but he's the Savior of all people. He's come to save us all. The rest of chapter 2 we looked at a few weeks ago in the context of Advent peace, but let's refresh ourselves on the big picture. What's Matthew doing as he lays the foundation of this gospel story? Before we ever hear a word from this Jesus, this new king, Matthew wants us to know without shadow of a doubt who he is. First, he is the new David. When Herod asks where the child would be born, they tell him in verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Matthew's quoting in part here, Second Samuel 5, pointing to David himself shepherding Israel as king in peace. But even David, as great a king as he was, was only a shadow of this new king. And Matthew's Jewish readers would have seen the clear parallels to Moses throughout this whole chapter. His life in danger as an infant, finding refuge in Egypt, then becoming deliverer of his people. So Jesus is not just the new David, Matthew is telling us. Jesus is also the new Moses. This is big. As great as Moses' deliverance of the nation Israel was from slavery in the book of Exodus... That deliverance that Israel was to look back to constantly as their salvation, that incredible deliverance was only a shadow of the ultimate deliverance that Messiah would bring. The deliverance that this new Moses would bring. Despite Herod's plan, God's plan, again, is never in danger. Look at verse 23. Herod is now dead, verse 23, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Well, as we noted a few weeks ago, there is no direct quotation here in the Old Testament with these words. But Matthew sees this also as a fulfillment of prophetic expectation. Jewish readers would notice the wordplay here because Nazarene is very close to the Hebrew word for branch. And that passage that we read throughout our series on heaven and that we came back to in Advent, Isaiah, speaking of Messiah as a branch from the root of Jesse. So Matthew keeps emphasizing that Jesus is the rightful Davidic king. But in this context, readers would be also a little surprised here because Nazareth was looked down on. Nazareth was a nowhere town. As Nathaniel would ask Philip in the Gospel of John, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And that's what a Jewish reader would be thinking themselves as they read this Gospel, as they heard this news. So Matthew was already foreshadowing, though Jesus is this great, long-awaited king, the rightful king, He would also be humble and rejected. As Isaiah also prophesied, Messiah would be the suffering servant, taking the sin of the people on himself. This is what many saw as a contradiction, what many in Jesus' own day on up to today. Reason why many have rejected Jesus as Messiah, because they want a conquering king, not a suffering servant. 
But Isaiah was trying to tell us centuries before that Messiah would hold these two together in one person. That Messiah would deliver us from sin, not on a white horse, but on a cross, despised and rejected for our salvation. As the angel told Joseph this surprising, incredible good news in chapter 1, this baby would save his people from their sins. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, as Matthew writes, he came to bring us all salvation. That includes you. Jesus offers you that freely. He accomplished it all himself. It's not up to you, it's up to him. He accomplished it through his death and resurrection. And you can respond to that good news by receiving this gift, by placing your faith in him, by believing Jesus is who he said he was. And maybe if you're here or joining us online, you're wrestling with the claims of Jesus Christ. I encourage you to stay with us for this series as we walk through this gospel to see for yourself what Jesus said about himself and what he did. And as for the believer, this study of Matthew is a great time to remember where your identity lies. Your identity is in Jesus Christ. Your identity as a member of his kingdom. So no matter what's going on in our lives, this is true. And we'll see more in the coming weeks what this identity should look like as Jesus teaches us through his words and his actions what it means to live out that identity in the world. And this identity is something we want to focus on as a church as we move ahead this year in our vision together. And we'll hear more about that in the coming weeks. But maybe you have some ambitious New Year's resolutions. Maybe with 2020 behind you, 2021 also now behind you, you're ready. You're ready to go. You have some ambition. You got some lofty goals. Or maybe like so many others, your goal is just to get through just to get through this next year, just to get through the month, even just the week. Wherever you are, though, let's begin this new year with a renewed sense of who we are and whose we are. Matthew shows us that Jesus is at the center of all Scripture. Jesus is at the center of human history, and he belongs at the center of our lives and at the center of our hearts. Despite all that's raging around us, when he's at the center, when our eyes are fixed on him, we can take hold of his provision, Christ in us. And we can find his peace and his joy and his hope that we talked about during Advent. We can experience that and it becomes real. And we can show that to the world around us. So let's begin this new year with our hearts and our minds and our affections set on Jesus Christ. And to help us move that direction, I close with a prayer, a Puritan prayer called the Gift of Gifts that would help us center our minds on Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Our Father and source of all good, what shall we render to you for the gift of gifts? Your own dear Son, begotten, not created, our Redeemer, proxy, surety, substitute, his self-emptying, incomprehensible, his infinity of love beyond the heart's grasp. Herein is wonder of wonders. He came below to raise us above, was born like us that we might become like him. Herein is love. When we cannot rise to him, he draws near on wings of grace to raise us to himself. Herein is power. 
When deity and humanity were infinitely apart, he united them in indissoluble unity, the uncreated and the created. Herein is wisdom. When we were undone, with no will to return to him and no intellect to devise recovery, he came, God incarnate, to save us to the uttermost, as man to die our death, to shed blood on our behalf, to work out a perfect righteousness for us. O God, take us in spirit to the watchful shepherds and enlarge our minds. Let us hear good tidings of great joy. And hearing, believe, rejoice, praise, adore. Our conscience bathed in an ocean of repose, our eyes uplifted to a reconciled Father. Place us with ox, camel, and goat to look with them upon our Redeemer's face. And in him account ourselves delivered from sin. Let us with Simeon clasp the newborn child to our hearts. Embrace him with undying faith. Exulting that he is ours and we are his. Our Father, in Jesus Christ you have given us so much that heaven can give no more. Amen. Let us stand.